Today you might have noticed from your bulletin that we are starting a new series titled Darkness Versus Light. This series was intended actually before any of the news came out this past week. It wasn't in mind, but it is definitely appropriate. You know, the Apostle Paul told Christians to expect that a day would come when good would be counted as evil and evil would be regarded as good. Surely we are in that day. The prophet Isaiah declared this warning in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Well, today as we begin this new series in the first epistle of John, uh, you can place your ribbon there from your Bible. And and we will look at 1 John now for several weeks as we work through it systematically as we typically do, first verse by verse and cover to cover. But today we'll start with just simply an introduction. If you're not familiar with this book or perhaps you haven't read it for some time, 1 John has been described by theologians as a family portrait. This is because it paints with detail the characteristics of those who belong to the family of God. Let's face it, we all know that children tend to look like their parents. And as children of God, we ought to look like Him. Of course, that would not imply physically, but of course, spiritually, Theologian William McDonald's writes this, When a person becomes a child of God, he receives the life of God, being eternal life. All who have this life show it in very definite ways. Unquote. Christians display basic character traits, family character traits. And 1 John is a letter exhorting believers everywhere to embrace and practice basic Christian doctrines. Basic Christian truths. There's nothing flashy or fancy about John's letter. In it, the apostle presents basic truths that have always been regarded as foundational Christianity. There's a very good reason that he does so. Many, if if not all of you, have heard of the renowned, the famous... Vince Lombardi. He was legendary coach, you know, of the Green Bay Packers. Including playoffs, his team went overall, believe this, 105 wins, 35 losses. He won five championships, three of which were consecutive, and he was feared by his players due to his commitment to discipline and his fanaticism about fundamentals. After one humiliating loss to a much inferior team, it's reported that Coach Lombardi called a practice very early the next morning. The men sat silently, looking more like whipped puppies than champions. They had no idea what to expect from the man that they had come to fear most. And he gritted his teeth and stared holes in the players. One athlete after another. And Lombardi began 
Okay, now we go back to the basics. And he held out a football in front of them, and holding it enough for all of them to see high enough, he continued to yell over and over, Gentlemen, this is a football. Well, Lombardi's devotion to mastering basic fundamentals reveals a strategy that he used to strengthen his teams to even overcome the most fierce opponents. This made Lombardi, we all know, a champion. But if Vince Lombardi is the most recognized success figure in professional football, certainly without question, the most renowned champion at the collegiate level was coach of the UCLA basketball team, John Wooden. Under Wooden's leadership, UCLA, get this, won 10 national championships in a 12-year period. And unprecedented, seven of them were consecutive. At one point, they won 88 consecutive games, including two undefeated seasons. It's marvelous. And I actually happened to have a close acquaintance who played for Coach Wooden on Wooden's last three years, his last three seasons, in which they won two of those championships. And this individual told me that the formula for success employed by Coach Wooden was to be relentless in the fundamentals of basketball. Wooden started team practices with basics, and he ended team practices with basics. Mastering simple, straightforward basics. Passing, guarding, defending, shooting, dribbling. You know, Wooden knew that his players were good. And he knew that they could make fancy dunks. But what he wanted to know was when a game was on the line, that they could make a clutch free throw to win a championship. Both Lombardi and Wooden recognize that you simply can't bypass the basics and then expect to win championships. You aren't going to win it with desperation, Hail Marys, and alley-oops. To become a consistent champion, you must return and remaster the fundamental principles again and again to overcome your adversaries. The Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And why? Paul says, because evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And earlier in chapter 2 in that same letter, Paul also writes... The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul experienced that even during his lifetime, imposters were already infiltrating the church. He said that it was only going to progress from bad to worse. Jesus himself warned and Matthew chapter 7, a very familiar text, he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The imposters were wearing sheep's clothing. Jesus' half-brother Jude wrote, 
Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in the church unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 3 and 4. Did you get that? Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith. How did people, how did the imposters creep in unnoticed? Jesus said they dressed up like sheep. Well, the writer of 1 John, we know, is already living in that age. From the beginning, local churches have been infiltrated with false teachers. And as we progress through this epistle, we'll discover that it describes them as deceivers, chapter 226. It says they originate from the devil, chapter 3, verse 8, and even labels them as antichrists. Have a nice day. That's tough stuff. This is from the Apostle John. There'd been a departure from orthodoxy. That means a departure from the correct belief. Others had left the church. They drew away father, followers after themselves. That's what false teachers do. They wreak havoc with Christ's church and attempt to disperse the flock. That's why Jesus identified them as ravenous wolves. Paul warned this would happen. He warned the church. In fact, when he said his final farewell to Ephesus, he called together the elders... That's the pastors, the shepherds. And the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 20 that Paul called them together. And in verse 28, he prepared them for this. And he told them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul says, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Paul told those shepherds, be ready. Be on guard. This is one of the primary responsibilities of the role of pastor. Defend the flock against imposters. And the letter written to Titus is one location we can find a criteria for pastors. In that passage, a pastor is called, in the Greek, episkopos. The modern translation we have is overseer. In biblical times, it was used to describe a protector or a watchman. And it was used interchangeably in Scripture with the term pastor. And one of the criteria that is given to Titus in chapter 1, verse 9 is that this overseer must be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Shepherds must always be watching and anticipating that they're going to have to drive trouble away. There was one example, was Wednesday night, that Frank Quintana and I went out and we were going door to door in an evangelism outreach. And we encountered one man who initially showed great interest 
He told us that he insisted that Christians have to keep the Mosaic law. He said, you have to keep the Mosaic law. And this guy was no dummy. He could quote a lot of scriptures from the Old Testament that applied to Israel. He was sharp. And he said, you know what? We still need to observe these dietary restrictions. I quoted him Mark 7, 19, where Jesus says, Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? And that same text says that Jesus, in those words, made all foods clean. That's where we're at. All foods are clean. And then this man told us, Frank remembers, we need to keep the Sabbath day. We have to keep the seventh day, Saturday, as a Sabbath rest. I quoted to him what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2. It says, No one is to act as your judge in regard to a food or to a drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. I assured him that Christ is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews assures us of that. And the man replied, Oh, Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. He said, I don't recognize him as an apostle. Wow. Then he added, he goes, you know what? And he's a sharp guy. He said, I think I'll stop by your church on Sunday. Frank and I told him, now if you're going to teach that, if that's what you're going to teach to the rest of the flock, you aren't welcome to come to our church. These are the type of threats that the church is facing. So Paul prepared those pastors in the city of Ephesus to expect this type of thing was going to happen. And sure enough, where do you suppose that first letter of John most likely originated from years later? Ephesus. Imposters and false teachers are exactly the types of problems that first John was written to address. And there are some remarkable facets to first John. Probably most obvious is that it's not written to any specific location. Remember, we, we re- go through the epistles, uh, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the church in Philippi, letter to the Galatians. This has no address on the front of the envelope. We don't know from any historical landmarks within the text where it was originally sent to. And this indicates to us that it's most likely a circular letter. Is designed to be passed from church to church. Heated by churches everywhere because this problem with false teachers, it got all over the place. It was systemic. It had worked its way into all the churches still during the lifetime of the apostles. They're infiltrating. The other thing that we can note is that there's no signature at the end. No signature. One thing that that indicates is that the recipients were likely fully aware of who was writing to them. They didn't have any question. They did not doubt at all. They felt no reason to question this author's identity. So, of course, your next question is, well, then how do we know who wrote it? Right? Well, there are numerous and substantial indicators, both inside and outside this letter, And the fact is that they all point to the same individual. 
First off, the first four verses demonstrate that the writer knew the Lord Jesus Christ personally and intimately. It claims an apostolic type of origin. Well, that narrows it down to what? One, two, three, twelve. Twelve options there, if that is the case. Secondly, the author writes in a very authoritative tone. It's a dogmatic presentation, and he expects to be obeyed. There's no question when he writes this letter, he wants to be obeyed. But perhaps more convincing is, although this is authoritative in style, it's written with the tenderness of someone who really cares deeply. On multiple occasions, the writer appeals to them as, my little children. My little children. He loved them. And the fact that he addresses even adults as my little children gives us the impression that the man by this time is well-aged. He's old. And perhaps most convincing of all the internal evidence that we see in the text are the striking similarities in vocabulary with that which we know of as the Gospel of John. The words and phrases used are so similar between the first epistle of John and the gospel of John that all credible textual critics agree that if you're going to accept that the gospel of John is from John, you have to accept that first John is from John as well. So they assigned to, to him this letter. But there's more. There's external evidence that complements the internal evidence. That means that there are historical records beyond the text itself. And they're equally convincing. Convincing. Listen to this. Diverse sources of church tradition, a diversity, consistently place John as living in Ephesus at a very advanced age and writing prolifically. He is regarded as having lived in Ephesus, writing prolifically. And when I credit church tradition here, at least on this occasion today, I don't mean the medieval church that came up with all kinds of strange doctrines like purgatory and such. That's not the church tradition that we're talking about here. No, when church tradition places John in Ephesus, along with the other letters, 2nd and 3rd John, it originates from early church fathers, credible early church fathers. That is, these people were second and third generation Christians. You've probably heard the names. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen. They all identified this as being from Paul, or from John, excuse me. And perhaps even more convincing is a bishop a bishop of Hierapolis named Papias. Have you ever heard that name? Papias. He was alive during the time of the apostles, and he met the apostle John face to face. John is described by all of these sources as quite elderly, living in Ephesus, from where it is reported that he carried out an extensive evangelism outreach program. He was John the Evangelist. Now imagine this situation. We know that Jerusalem's been sacked probably years before by Emperor Titus. 
That would have been in 70 A.D. And the apostles had already been dispersed, we know, all over from Africa to India and probably beyond, where they suffered torture, martyrdom for their faith. By this time of this letter, quite probably somewhere between 85 and 95 A.D., John is the last remaining apostle. Older than most of his constituency, he decides he's going to pull up a beach chair right there next to the Aegean Sea, and he's going to get a good tan and sip on some of those fruity umbrella drinks. No. No, that's not what he does. You don't find anything that would resemble attitude among the apostles. You know, you and I might retire from General Motors, a local police department, maybe even occupational ministry, but there's no retiring from Christian service. John is likely already surpassed 80 years old, possibly even more by the time he writes this, and he's leading an evangelism outreach in the city of Ephesus. He's going out and preaching the gospel. And then he's writing letters like this, defending churches against false teaching. That same Papias, who wrote extensively about his encounters with a number of apostles, he described John in these terms. He said that the apostle is a living and abiding voice. A living and abiding voice. Are you committed to being a living and abiding voice? Are you committed that the next generation of Americans, the young generation, our children, are going to hear about Jesus Christ? That they're going to hear about the doctrine of substitution where he hung on the cross for our sins? Are you going to proclaim Jesus Christ and the truths about God and the Bible? The Apostle John was committed to be a living and abiding voice. And the Holy Spirit guided him to write this letter. The posture that John assumes, it's simple, straightforward. He calls the churches to return to basic, foundational doctrines. When there's an infiltration of deception, you reaffirm what's true from the beginning, that will be today, that will be tomorrow, and will be for eternity. The truth from the scriptures. And the apostle states that these truths are divine. He restates them. He uses an approach of declaring a foundational truth, and then later on in the letter, bringing that same truth back and expanding more broadly on the topic, reaffirming it and expanding upon it, in broader terms. So we're going to be able to review repeated themes in this letter. What have you and I learned about Scripture when we see things that are repeated? Whether it's a word or a concept or a theme. Repetition means it's very, very important. Anytime you see something in Scripture, whether it's a passage with a word repeated several times, it's very important. In this epistle, the information that John gives, he is indicating is immensely valuable. Immensely valuable. 
So what will we find on these pages? Well, first, we're going to find out that a church is threatened. The church, capital C, the Church of Christ is threatened. That's already clear. It's threatened by those who are willingly trying to malign the truth about Christ. They propagate false concepts about Jesus. Is that a problem today? Are there people propagating false concepts about Jesus that don't appear on the Scriptures? There are entire denominations in America call themselves, quote-unquote, Christians that assert that Jesus is just dandy with you being a devoted Buddhist or a sincere Muslim. That's not the Jesus that appears on Scripture. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's John 14, 6. And then again in John chapter 3, verse 18, he's talking to a man named Nicodemus. Do you remember? And he tells Nicodemus, He who believes in the Son is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And Jesus continues, This is the judgment, he says, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds, Jesus says, were evil. One of the primary reasons that John wrote this letter are to correct misconceptions about Jesus Christ. Another problem that was infiltrating the church during this time was diverse philosophies that likely became what is now known as Gnosticism. You heard that word Gnosticism? The Greek term gnosis, it means knowledge. knowledge. Gnosticism is a type of mystical elitism which claims that there's a hidden, hidden understanding about God beyond Scripture. There's a knowledge out there that's only available, they would say, to an elite exclusive few. Hmm. Nothing can be less Christian than that. Nothing's less Christian about sectarianism or elitism. There exists no privileged secret societies among Christ's flock. Scripture shows us that we're all in this together. So we're going to see the apostle repeatedly bring up fellowship and unity in this letter. And in addition, Gnosticism, it developed from the idea that the created material world, stuff, even flesh, it was base, they would say, and immoral. Material stuff is immoral, and the divine world of God, the immaterial, is spiritual. In their belief system, would God then assume a human body? No. No, in their belief system, these individuals denied the incarnation and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Some of them, we know, proposed that Jesus was only a man and that he became Christ when the Spirit descended upon him like a dove at his baptism. Do you remember that? He said he was just a man before that. The Spirit of God came down on him and then made him the Christ. 
And then they also say that before his crucifixion, that that spirit departed him. What does that mean about who died on the cross? Just a man. Just a man. That causes a really big problem with the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. They'd assert God didn't die on the cross, just some man named Jesus did. Another line of thought from this said that Jesus never really had a body at all. It says that he only appeared to have a body. So he was then just some kind of phantom. So we're going to find the apostle right out of the gate, right at the beginning, the first passage, defending the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You say, well, wow, this is all a long time ago. Ancient history. Are there any cults today that are denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth and the substitutionary atonement? You bet they are. They're knocking on your door all the time. They do not believe in the incarnation of the Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe Christian doctrine. So the false teachers claimed that God would not have come in the flesh. He wouldn't have done that. And that either resulted in one of two things. Either they would abuse the body very harshly, sometimes known as asceticism. They would abuse the flesh. Or if you can believe this, probably can't believe it. Some people actually concluded that the sins that are committed in, in the fleshly body, that they were inconsequential and unrelated to being spiritual. They say it didn't matter. They declare that, you know, it really doesn't matter what your body craves, just feed it. So they'd say, you know, you struggle with that sexual lust, why don't you just take a weekend away to Vegas, go fill it. Because it didn't matter. What you did with your body, in their opinion, didn't matter. It wasn't in their value system, it wasn't in their belief system. I'm so, so glad that isn't a problem today. Are there any churches out there that are condoning sin? Fornication, cohabitation. How about endorsing sins? Telling people it's, go, it's okay, go ahead. Go ahead, do what you want. If it feels good, do it. For many of these churches that identify themselves, they've taken confession and repentance completely off the table unnecessary you just enjoy your sin don't even call it sin there's no confession there's no repentance the danger of that is there's no forgiveness fortunately we're going to hear the apostle repeatedly exhorting us to resist sin in this letter turn from the darkness of the world and into the light it's a firm letter there exists no middle ground with the Apostle John. Uh, he, he provides unquestionable, sound doctrines that represent certainties and not conjecture. He's not guessing. He declares what is rather than asking the question, what if? For him, you've either turned to the light and to uh, the life of Jesus Christ, either you've turned there or you remain in darkness. It's one or the other. This is one book where you will not find 50 shades of gray. There's no gray area. You're either in or you're out. 
And to illustrate that, we're going to observe the apostle using a number of sharp contrasts through this letter. We'll see light versus darkness, truth and lie, death and life, love and hate, Cain and Abel, God and the devil. And why does John do so? Is it just because he's a tough guy? Wants to spoil people's fun? It's not. It's not. It's because he loves them. And the apostle realizes that in in deciding to become a Christian, there's no sitting on the fence. There's no sitting on the fence. After we've accepted God's precious gift of Jesus Christ, John declares, and he says, that we have now passed from death unto life. As I implied earlier, the apostle assumes a tone in this letter of a pastor, a shepherd. He is kind but firm. What a shepherd does is he nourishes the flock. He drives off the predators. That is achieved, John realizes, primarily by proclaiming the basic truths of God, the truths of the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Until I come, give the attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Pay close attention to yourself and to those you are teaching, he tells Timothy. Persevere in these things. For as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. That's what we do at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We proclaim the truth. John knows that truth purifies the church because faithful preaching of God's word is completely unpalatable to those who don't like it. They cannot digest the word when they're confronted with basic truths from Scripture. Many of the imposters at that point defect. And he saw that already. We'll see in chapter 2 that John writes, They went out of us because they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. So we're going to learn that the Apostle John is deeply concerned about the purity of the church, both doctrinally and morally. He's concerned about purity in a corporate sense, all of us together. He's concerned about purity as individuals. That is our sanctification, that we become more and more like Christ Jesus, more pure, more loving, more devoted, more kind. If you're visiting today, you're kind of wondering to yourself, why is this even important? It's because we live in a day and in an age where people who identify themselves as Christian, at least by name, mistakenly believe that devotion to Jesus Christ is an option. We live in an age where false religious leaders of all types and of all backgrounds deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Instead, they propose he was just a prophet, one of a number of prophets. That's a lie. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And thirdly, we live in a day where personal holiness among God's sheep 
is non-compulsory. Christians are being incorrectly taught that a little darkness, that's okay. Go for it. In fact, since Christ died for our sins anyhow, they might say, just go live it up. Why not? The first epistle of John is going to tell us why. And finally, we'll find there's an evangelistic tone to this letter. That means that through reading and studying this epistle, you and I come to understand God's holiness. We come to understand our own personal sinfulness, our separation from God and Christ's majesty as he suffered and died in our place. So next week, we will start fresh in verse 1, the first passage. And in the opening words, we'll address the authenticity of Christ's deity and his humanity. If you're concerned about your neighbor, if you're concerned about your nation, this would be the time that you have an opportunity, starting a new book, to invite them to church. Bring them to church to hear about Jesus, to hear the word of God, to sing about the doctrines of the faith and worship. Go out and do the work of an evangelist. And if this is your first time at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, or your first time possibly in a while, and you've been pondering yourself, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with Christ. Perhaps you've been lingering in the shadows of the darkness, wondering how to emerge out into the light. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. You don't wait. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You need to understand that God is offended by your sin. And don't worry about everybody else right now. Don't be thinking about how you've been offended by everybody else. That's not the issue here. It's time to acknowledge that you have offended God. We all have. You are the problem. But there's really, really good news. Jesus is a solution. There is a solution to all the sins, all the guilt, all the debt that you owe. He's the Savior of the world, folks. Jesus is the King. And as God's eternal Son, He came to earth, He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He was born to a young virgin girl free from inherited sin, and he lived the perfect sinless life that you and I have not been able to live. He did it. And the Father declared from heaven unto him, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What would please God today, God the Father, that you put your faith in Christ? He is a sinless Savior. He's the Prince of Peace. He willingly offered himself to be beaten and bruised and and nailed to a cross. He died offering to pay the penalty of your sins, if you will believe. That is the biblical demonstration of love. That God died for you, and you need to be reconciled to him. Love does not mean, is never defined in the Bible, that you just condone any type of immoral behavior. That's not love. In a way, that's a perverse form of hate because you're not helping them to be reconciled to God. But Jesus paid that debt. He cried out with his final breath, It is finished. 
On the third day, he conquered the grave. He rose again to new life. Scripture says that anyone who believes in him will be, return, will be revived to new life themselves, and they'll never perish. And here it is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever will believe in him will never perish, but has everlasting life. Pray to him and receive him as your Savior today. And pray something like this. Bow your heads. God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm convicted, Lord, of my sins. I know, Lord God, that you are holy, that you're pure, that you love righteousness, Lord God, because you sent your Son to die for those who are unrighteous, Lord, of which I'm one. Lord, I pray today that you would send Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit into my heart, Lord, to turn, help me to turn away from my darkness, Lord, and to honor Jesus in everything that I do. Lord, I pray that you'll strengthen me. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life in a way that is honorable to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.